Remain standing for our sermon text from Romans chapter 3. Give your ear to God's Word. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you judge. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say that God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to His glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why, and why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, Their condemnation is just. Thus far the reading of God's Word. This is the Word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, today we come to a dense and heavy passage and we ask that You would show us Your glory so that we can glorify You in our obedience from the heart. We need Your Spirit to work this in us, and so we pray for it yet again. May the Spirit who inspired these words work in us to plant them deep in the recesses of our hearts so that they grow and produce fruit. We ask this for Christ's sake and in His name. Amen. Please be seated. It's a... Good for the pastors not to have a microphone every once in a while. It's good training for us to project. So, so don't even worry about it anymore. If you guys are still scrambling to get it working, we'll, we'll make do. Their condemnation is just. If, if we wanted Paul to end this heavy passage on a lighter note, well, he disappoints us. Whose condemnation is just? Who will be justly condemned at the end of history? Verses 5 and 6 allude to the final judgment. When Jesus returns to judge the world, the living and the dead, Paul says God will inflict His wrath on some people. In verse 8, he says that their condemnation will be just. It will be righteous. Who are these people? Why will their condemnation be just? And how do we make sure that we are not among them? We need to pull out our maps and look at where we are in the book of Romans. If you visit a state park or, or a zoo or something like that, they, they have maps that say, you are here. And, and so you, you get yourself oriented that way. Well, we just read Romans 3, 1 to 8, but we need to unroll the scroll a bit more 
and see where we are in relation to the rest of Romans. So let's orient ourselves so we know where Paul's been, what he's doing, and where he's going. For several weeks now, we've been in the sin section, as I call it, of Romans. The sin sec section began back in the middle of chapter 1, in verse 18. And right before that, in verses 16 and 17, Paul announced his gospel. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God, resulting in salvation for everyone who believes. For the Jew first, and also for the Greek. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, which means it's revealed by faith from first to last, by faith alone. Just as it is written, but the righteous one will live by faith. So right on the heels of, of this glorious gospel theme statement, in verse 18, Paul launched into what will end up being two full chapters on the hopeless depravity of mankind. The whole second half of Romans 1 was dedicated to the idolatrous wickedness of the Gentile branch of mankind. And then in chapter 2, it, Paul devotes that whole chapter to the idolatrous wickedness of the, of the other branch of mankind, the Jewish branch, which, which looks different from the Gentile idolatrous wickedness on the surface but is the same underneath. So where's Paul going in this sin section? Well, he's headed to Romans 3, 9 to 20, which is next week's passage. Uh, there he concludes that all of humanity, Jews and Gentiles alike, are equally depraved, equally incapable of doing any good, equally helpless before God, equally helpless to save themselves from sin, <coughs> equally enslaved to sin, equally in need of a righteousness outside of themselves. <coughs> this is a righteousness that only God can give. <coughs> in two sermons from now, so not next week, but the week after that, or when I come back, We'll study the solution to mankind's sin problem. So the sin section eventually gives way to the good news. Paul, he's going to return to that glorious gospel that he announced in the middle of chapter 1 in Romans 3, 21 to 26, which is my favorite part in Romans and one of my favorite passages in the Bible. He returns and he, he, he expands on the gospel in verses 16 and 17 of chapter 1. So, where does today's text fit into this story? Well, the first eight verses of Romans 3 are situated in the sin section right before its conclusion that we'll see next week. And it fits well there even though, even though it's something of a detour. Okay? Why, why the detour? Well, before Paul could conclude his sin section, he needed to stop and answer some common objections. And so he's just argued in Romans 2.25 that if a religious Jew doesn't keep God's law, then his circumcision has become 
uncircumcision. He's no different from an unbelieving Gentile. Then in 2.27, he said that Gentiles who do obey God's commandments, Gentiles who have been circumcised by God in their hearts, will even stand in judgment over Jewish people who have not been inwardly transformed by the gospel, who have not been born again, not been circumcised of heart. Well, this is very offensive, obviously, to the Jews. But Paul said all of this in service to his overall point that Jews and Gentiles are equally under the power of sin and equally in need of that transforming power of the gospel which is powerful not only to save, but also powerful to make people obedient to Christ. Neither branch of humanity has a righteousness of its own. Both branches, Jews and Gentiles, equally need the righteousness that God gives to those who trust in His Son from the outside in. Now, I mentioned last week how a veteran school teacher is good at anticipating questions and objections to the material. And I, and I talked with a couple of former teachers after church. They confirmed that what I said is true. And Paul's been teaching and preaching the same gospel for over two decades in synagogues and in churches all across the Roman Empire. So he knows what his protesters are thinking. He's heard all the questions. He's dealt with all of the erroneous extrapolations and conclusions. He's seen all the ways that unbelievers, especially unbelieving Jews, twist his words in order to justify their rejection of the gospel. That's how the human heart works. That's how the human heart works apart from the conquering grace of the Holy Spirit. And this is still true to some extent, even in those of us who are saved. In order to justify ourselves, we've got to figure out ways to minimize the demands of God. That's just, that's, that comes natural. Now, most of the time, people don't go straight to uh, uh, you know, criticizing or disapproving of God Himself. That's, that's a little too scary. <clears throat> Instead, we criticize his messengers or we reinterpret his truth so that it conforms to our preferred understanding of reality. The reality that we would have created, that we would like to create in our own image. One way you may do this is by telling yourself that repentance of a certain sin is negotiable. It's not necessary. Now, it might be nice if you could repent. You would like to repent. But it's not critical. After all, the gospel is free. You can't earn God's salvation by forsaking your sin enough. You know, th therefore, repentance might be preferable, but it's not necessary. <clears throat> That's a wicked distortion of the gospel. 
It twists what Paul says and what the rest of the New Testament authors say about the freeness of God's grace. To say that God's grace is free, completely unearned, is true. 100% true. No qualifications. To say that God doesn't require obedience is a false gospel. The fancy word for that distortion of the gospel is antinomianism. We, I, we talked about that word last week. A- antinomianism means anti-against, namas, law. Antinomians create a false gospel when they say that faith that's not accompanied by works can save you. James says that faith without works, faith without obedience, faith without fruit is what? Is what? Dead. It's, it's deader than a doornail. A doorknob. It's unable to save completely. Now, antinomian thinking pervades the church, churches in our day. It pervades Christian thinking. You, if, if you keep an ear out, you'll hear it all the time in the way Christians talk about their faith or other people. Obedience to God's law is unimportant, even unnecessary. Just as it pervaded the churches and the synagogues in Paul's day, which is why he had to address it. Many in Paul's audience thought that their commitment to religion would save them, regardless of their faithfulness. The Jews in particular thought that because God had chosen them out of all the nations, because they were the elect people of God, they got a pass. They would pass muster on judgment day because they were Israel. They were Jews even apart from obedience to God in this life. They didn't require faithfulness and fruitfulness of themselves. Repentance and good works were unnecessary add-ons. God had promised to save them. And He must keep His promise, His gracious promises, no matter how unfaithful they might become. Their twisted understanding of God's grace leads to their first objection here, which Paul formulates for them in his own words in verse 1 of Romans 3. What then is the advantage of the Jew, or what is the profit of circumcision? In other words, what's the point in being a Jew? Is, Is there any saving advantage to being a circumcised Israelite? Any advantage at all? Now, having heard Paul's argument in chapter 2, we're ready to respond no. And that's maybe what the objection is thinking. You're saying there's no advantage whatsoever. But Paul takes this opportunity to affirm God's saving promises in Israel. Yes, Paul says, verse 2, the Jews were given the scriptures which promised their salvation. The central theme of God's word in the Old Testament is the salvation of his chosen people. And we know that Israel's salvation is what Paul has in mind because of the second objection. 
in verse 3. What if some of them were unfaithful? Will their unfaithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? In other words, does their unfaithfulness undo God's faithfulness, his promise and his word to save them? And Paul's answer in verse 4 is, no way, may it never be. God remains faithful even though the Jews are in bondage to sin. Let God be true, though every human being, every man is a liar. God's pledge to save Israel is not a pledge, you see, to save every single Israelite, individual Israelite. God certainly doesn't promise to save all the Jews, every single Jew, whether or not they love God and keep His commandments. The pledge is to Israel as a whole. And someday God's promise to Israel will be fulfilled. Now, Paul doesn't unpack all of that for us in Romans 3, but he, but he does in chapter 11. We looked at a long passage last week in Romans 11. Turn there again. And we'll look at a different passage today. Now last Sunday we looked at verses 25 to 32, which describes that the partial hardening that has come upon the majority of Israel. A hardening that, of hearts, hardening of their hearts that continues to today, to 2022. And this, this hardening will persist, Paul says, until the full number of Gentiles has come in. And, and then, once all the Gentiles have come in, that are going to come in, the full number, whatever number that is, God knows we don't, then all Israel will be saved. A mass conversion of Jews will take place. And this future salvation of Israel will be the fulfillment of God's promise to save Israel. Now, before we read Romans 11, I want to, let me remind you, we won't turn there, but let me remind you what we looked at last week in Acts 3, where Peter is preaching not long after the ascension. Today is Ascension Sunday. This is soon after the ascension of Christ. He's preaching to the Jews in the temple, pleading with them to turn to Christ. And Peter says there, when, when, revival, not if, when revival hits Israel... And they all turn to Christ, the ethnic Israel. Not only will they be forgiven of their sins, and let me be clear, this is in Christ. This is not apart from Christ. This is not a separate salvation track outside of Christ. It's when they turn to Christ, there's, not only will their sins be forgiven, including the sin of putting the author of life to death, Peter says, but they will also experience a cosmic refreshing. That's the word along with the rest of God's people. There, that's in verses 19 to 21 in Acts 3. Their repentance will trigger the restoration of all things, the recreation of heaven and earth. That's when we'll get our new bodies. That, that will be just like Jesus' glorious body as we studied today in Sunday school class. And soon after Israel repents en masse, Soon after all Israel is saved by turning from their sins and putting their faith in Christ, soon after that, Jesus will return from heaven to earth to restore all things. That's what Peter says in Acts 3. So if you've turned to Romans 11, let's read together a different passage where Paul teaches this same thing. It's earlier in the same chapter. 
starting in verse 11. I'll read from the ESV today. So I ask, did they stumble? That is, has the majority of Israel stumbled in order that they might fall? And that means completely apostatized with no repentance. By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. The principal trespass, the principal sin was putting the author of life to death on the cross. Through that, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Verse 12, now if their trespass means riches for the world, the Gentile world, if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? In other words, while it's true that Israel's partial hardening has occasioned spiritual riches in Christ for the Gentiles, it's also true that Israel's future salvation will occasion even greater riches for the whole world. Something greater than we're experiencing now is coming after that conversion. When all Israel is saved, when God grants them repentance and grants them back into the olive tree, grafts them back into the olive tree, he will unleash unprecedented blessings and riches on the earth. That's, that's our hope. That's what we're looking forward to. But what are those riches exactly? Well, skip down to verse 15, and that's where Paul gives, fleshes out the answer a little bit. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from God? the dead. Life from the dead refers to the resurrection of believers when Jesus returns. So Israel's conversion to Christ at the end of history will lead straight into the new creation and the resurrection of all believers. And so so the, so the conversion of Israel, the salvation of all Israel, as Paul puts it, will trigger four things. The return Christ, times of refreshing, the restoration of all things, and the resurrection of believers. Those are four specific things that Paul and Peter mention, temporally tied to that event. Therefore, God is faithful to his promise. He will save ethnic Jews by bringing them to Christ, not outside of Christ, by bringing them to Christ by repentance and faith. That's the message of Romans 3, 1 to 4, but this leaves a lingering question on the table. Does the unfaithfulness of most Jews throughout history call into question God's faithfulness to his people and promises? And Paul anticipates this kind of the same objection. It's like he did, they didn't accept the answer. Paul anticipates this objection and addresses it in the second half of verse 4. Just as it is written, and he quotes Psalm 51 verse 4, that you may be proved righteous in your words and may triumph when you judge. Now that, that quote is taken from David's prayer of confession after he committed adultery with Bathsheba and then killed her husband to cover it. Why does Paul quote David here? What's the point? What does this prove? How does this establish his point? Well, it, it shows that an Israelite hero like David even he recognized 
that God's promise to Israel does not mean that an individual Israelite is off the hook just by virtue of being an Israelite, by virtue of being religious, by virtue of being in the covenant, by virtue of being circumcised. We might say by virtue of being baptized and member of the church. The faithfulness of God doesn't mean that He will save every covenant member, every church member, every baptized person, no matter what, whether or not they are trusting and obeying Jesus. God's faithfulness, His righteousness, His truthfulness to Himself includes His condemnation of unfaithful Jews, His condemnation of unfaithful church members. God will be proved true and righteous when he judges unrighteous covenant breakers. You see, God has two ways of being faithful and true and righteous with regard to members of the covenant, with regard to people like us. One way he remains faithful and true is by saving his elect people, his sheep by circumcising their hearts and giving them faith and repentance, covering their sins with the blood of Christ. Another way he remains true and faithful is by condemning people who are outwardly religious but who have not been born again, who do not walk in the ways of the Lord. The transition in the second half of verse 4 leads Paul to reflect on God's righteousness in judgment. His righteousness in judging religious sinners who don't actually know Jesus. It's a, it's a phenomenon that was true then and is true today. Religious people who don't know Jesus. That's the point of verses 5 to 8. God is true to Himself. He will judge ethnic Jews. He will judge the descendants of Abraham who do not come to Christ, who do not accept their Messiah. And this leads to two more objections. Verse 5, Paul voices the third objection from the perspective of his fellow Jews. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates God's righteousness, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous? To inflict wrath? And then he trembles even saying something like that God could be unright. I speak in a human way. He doesn't even like to present their argument. Now in your handout, I paraphrase objection three this way. Paul, your gospel teaches that the unrighteousness of the Jews highlights God's righteousness and God's justice in judging sinners. But... It's not our fault that we can't circum circumcise our hearts. If, if the wickedness of the Jews is so radical, as you insist in Romans 2 and 3, if it's so radical that our only hope is God's electing grace, as you insist in Romans 9 to 11, then isn't, God's, isn't God unrighteous to inflict His wrath on us? What can we do? How can he hold us responsible? The Jews had a problem with predestination. 
Now, on the one hand, they loved the doctrine of predestination. They were the elect people of God. But they thought that God's electing grace, at least as Paul understood it, was unjust. So Paul's version of election, predestination, is unjust. So their objection to Paul, their objections, plural, to Paul, were the same objections you hear today from people who think God's election, his predestination, is unfair. Now, again, later in Romans, in chapter 9, Paul responds to this objection in greater detail. So let's flip over there again. To Romans 9. We'll read a few verses. Now, let let me summarize the first part of Romans 9. The first 13 verses... Paul argues that while Israel is certainly God's chosen people, still, in some sense, not not every Israelite is a true Israelite. Okay, remember that argument? He says in verses 6 and 7, For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. So they're Israelites, but they're not Israelites. And not all are children of Abraham just because they are his offspring. Verse 8, This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God. I think it's verse 8. I may have got those mixed up. This means that it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. And now skip down to verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part because of this election? Because not every Israelite is really a chosen Israelite. So not all the chosen people are the chosen people. Shall we say, is this unjust of God to do this sort of thing? So do you hear the echoes in Romans 3, 5 here in in Romans 9? So Paul's expanding the argument. By no means, he says, verse 15. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And so he's saying that this is happening at an individual level. What you thought was just corporate and you would get just sort of caught up in it. No, there's, there's an individual election that you haven't taken into account. Verse 16, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. And right now, he's hardening Israel. Same word there. Now the next verse... Romans 9.19 is where Paul raises the objection that most resembles the objection back in Romans 3.5. Verse 19, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist God's will? Have you ever heard that before? I have a lot. In other words, if God's the one who ultimately decides everything, including who will become a true Israelite and who will not, 
If God's the one who predetermines who gets a circumcised heart and who does not, then how can God find fault with my unrighteousness? So he's responding to anti-Calvinists. And what's his response to these anti-Calvinists? To the person who doesn't like God's predestination, the granular level. Well, it's verse 20. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? That same O man that shows up in Romans 2 when he's interacting with the Jewish interlocutor. Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Asking God, why did you make me this way, will not get you off the hook on judgment day. We see here something that's common to all of us. We humans don't like, in all kinds of different ways, that God is God and we are not. That He is the potter and we are the clay. We don't like that God can mold us a certain way and then also hold us responsible for how He molded us. Of course, God is able to mold us a certain way and then within that umbrella of His absolute control and sovereignty, He can give us genuine freedom so that when we make the wrong decision, when we don't obey God, we are accountable. We are responsible. And so judgment is just. Their condemnation is just. But, but even many Christians hate the idea that God the potter makes human vessels for dishonorable use. Vessels of wrath predestined for destruction, Paul says later in Romans 9. Now, the, the objections I hear to this teaching are the same ones Paul was addressing and uh, dealing with back in the first century. We humans hate that God is God and that we are not. We're not really sold out for God's glory, whatever that means. Not just on this doctrine, but in all of life. We hold on to certain aspects of our life so that they are more pointed to us and our kingdom and our glory than they are to God. We're bent in on ourselves. And this is just one example. We, we want to reserve some space in the cosmos for our glory and our sovereignty. And, and by the way, even those of us who accept the plain teaching of Scripture on this point, those of us who affirm God's electing grace, we can turn it into an occasion for pride very easily, can't we? If, if believing in predestination gives you a superiority complex, if it puffs you up and makes you feel superior to those who, don't, who can't see it, then you've completely missed the point of the doctrine. In that case, your understanding 
quote-unquote understanding is actually no better than, possibly worse than, those who can't see the plain meaning of the text and its implications. I, I, I remember exactly where I was on the college campus, where I was standing. I was a janitor and I was standing right next to my trash can. I was a sophomore in college when one of my Bible professors who was making copies in the copy room was, I was talking with him about this doctrine. And at one point he had to gently remind me, I needed a firm reminder, he gently reminded me that a proud Calvinist is an oxymoron. A proud Calvinist, you see, is even prouder than an anti-Calvinist. Well, returning, returning to Romans 3, Paul's short answer to the objection in verse 5 is no way. By that logic, you know, that, by that logic in objection 3, God wouldn't even be able to judge the Gentile world. Verse 6, may it never be. Otherwise, how could God judge the world? In other words, if it would be unfair, unjust, for God to inflict wrath on unrighteous, unrepentant Jews on the basis that their unrighteousness ends up manifesting the justice and righteousness of God when he judges them, then it would be unfair and unjust for God to inflict wrath on anyone at all. You see, the one thing that every Jew knew was that on Judgment Day, the Gentiles were going to get what was coming to them. They believed that God's judgment against the world would demonstrate His righteousness. But Paul says, no, the logic in verse 5 doesn't work. If God can inflict wrath on unrighteous Gentiles and still be righteous, then He can just as well inflict wrath on unrighteous Jews and still be righteous. You see how he continues to level the playing field for Jews and Gentiles. Even as he is affirming that the Jews are first. You know, he, he often says, to the Jews first. They do have promises. They are God's chosen people still in a, in a special way that's going to have implications for the future. But they're standing before God. They don't have any advantages outside of trusting in Christ. The fourth objection is mostly a restatement of the third one. I'll, per I'll paraphrase it first and then read the text. Again, Paul, again, if my sin causes God's truthfulness to abound so that His glory is manifested when He judges me, then why does God still condemn me as a sinner? In fact, and this is where the argument gets extended, in fact, shouldn't we do evil to bring, to bring about greater good? For if through my lie the truth of God abounds to His glory, why am I still judged as a sinner? 
Indeed, why not say, as some people slanderously claim that we say, let us do evil that good may come. This must have been a common response to Paul's gospel because he's going to address it again. He's going to bring it up again at the beginning of Romans 6, the very first verse. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? May it never be. Anyone who teaches that we should do evil or even that we can do evil to bring about greater good who thinks it's okay to even make that an option, or, or anyone who claims that Paul teaches that, is justly condemned by God. Their condemnation, Paul says, is just. Their condemnation is just. Now, while it's true that the Jews misunderstood the nature of God's faithfulness, and while it's true that their understanding was man-centered instead of God-centered, that's the whole problem here. They're man-centered, Israel-centered, not God-centered. They want their glory, not God's. Even though all that's true, they were correct to believe that whatever God has promised, He will do. God is true, though every man is a liar. You can depend on God to carry out to the letter every promise he has ever made. His word is sure. But you see, you must be careful how you apply that, how you interpret God's promises. And you must remember that God is primarily about His glory, not yours. He's in it for His glory, His praise, not yours, ultimately, not first, not foremost. He's not your servant whose job it is to forgive you no matter how rebellious and unrepentant you become. God is chiefly faithful to Himself. In 2 Timothy which is Paul's final inspired letter. He writes it just before he dies. He knows he's about to die, and he speaks to Timothy of God's faithfulness, both to his people and to himself. You may know, which, it's a, it's a well-known passage. You may know which one I'm talking about. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 to 13. You may want to write those, that, that passage down and study it later. Or you can turn there if you'd like. But, but if at least just listen to what Paul says in 2 Timothy 2, 11 to 13. Here is a trustworthy saying. If we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure... We're faithful to the end. We will also reign with him. But if we disown him, he will disown us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot disown himself. 
Now, I've heard some people twist that last verse into saying the opposite of what it actually says. They take it to mean that if I'm faithless, if I'm unfaithful to God, then he'll still save me. I'm still okay because he's faithful. And it's not about my faithfulness. It's about God. Well, there, there, is, there's, there is a truth there that's in the Bible, that, but that's not what Paul's talking about here. It is true that we are saved and that our only hope is God's faithfulness, not ours. We're saved by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. His righteousness gets imputed to us and we accept it by faith. And then we walk in obedience imperfectly. Obedience that could never in a million, billion, trillion years save us. Okay, so that's true. Not our faithfulness, God's faithfulness, Christ's faithfulness. But in this passage, it's not talking about that. It is talking about our imperfect faithfulness, which is required. And so to say that when I'm unfaithful, when I'm not walking with the Lord, then God is faithful and I'll still be saved is to turn this passage in 2, Peter, 2 Timothy 2 on its head. Paul's point is that the only one God cannot disown is himself. If we're faithless, if we show no regard for the commandments of God, he'll remain faithful to himself by, the text says, by disowning us. That's, that's precisely how Paul words it in the previous verse. If we disown him, he will disown us. Those who presume upon God's grace will be condemned by God. Presuming upon God's grace is not the same thing as depending on God's grace. You must know the difference. Depending on God's grace is what saving faith does because it knows that it can't, say, that it can't save itself. Presuming upon God's grace is treating God, as I said last week, like your personal forgiveness genie who is at your beck and call. Their condemnation is just. If you treat God like a forgiveness genie, He will be proved righteous on the last day when He inflicts His wrath on you. Now, I, I realize that this is heavy stuff, right? Paul's not exactly known for being the apostle who pulls punches, is he? Has Paul lost sight? Has he lost sight of the free gospel of grace? Has this sermon lost sight of the free gospel of grace? Maybe you're asking that. None of this contradicts salvation by grace alone. If we're not careful, we could lose balance when we talk about this easily and forget the foundation of salvation by grace alone. But what Paul's after and what I want for you, what I pray God gives you by His Spirit, by means of this text, this inspired word, is an assurance of salvation. You're thinking, whoa, you're wanting me to have an assurance of salvation right now? That's... Uh, you didn't do a very good job. But no, what, what Paul is after, what, what I want for you, is an assurance of salvation that is based on truth, that is based on the true gospel, not one of the false ones, an assurance that's centered on God's glory 
rather than your comfort. An assurance that fears God and keeps His commandments. An assurance that reflects the fullness of the gospel's power. Not a truncated gospel, but the fullness of the power of the gospel. A power that both saves you and makes you obedient to Christ. A gospel that has the power not only to save you, but also to sanctify you. That gospel, when you believe it, when you live it out, that gospel can give you an assurance that the false gospels cannot. That antinomianism cannot. That legalism cannot give. So there's an assurance on the other side of the God-glorifying gospel. At the bottom of your handout is a box. And in that box, uh, there is representations of three roads to assurance. The first two are roads to false assurance because they're false gospels. The, The legalist assures himself that faith plus his good works, you know, he's tithing on his mint, all these good works, makes a person righteous before God. Well, of course, the problem there, he underestimates the filthiness of his good works. He fails to understand that we're saved by grace alone through faith alone, or we're not saved at all. Our righteousness must come from the outside, from God, not from the inside, not from ourselves. So that's the legalist gospel. There's no assurance there. We, we try that out sometimes, don't we? But it, it ends badly. Well, the antinomian assures himself that faith without works can make a person righteous before God. He fails to realize that such a faith is dead and cannot save anyone. He fails to understand that we're saved by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. When God gives us His righteousness, it always produces holy living. Every time without exception. The only path to salvation and genuine assurance of salvation is the path of the full-orbed gospel. The faith that saves always generates obedience. Not perfection. Not perfect faithfulness. Right? We'll never, we'll, we'll never have that in this life. Right? We're always a mess. We always constantly need God's forgiveness. Okay, that's, that's true. If I haven't been clear on that, that, let me be clear. But the faith that saves always produces, generates obedience. Always leads to good works. Produces fruit. It's always accompanied by this growing, with setbacks, but growing repentance and obedience. Sanctification. Saving faith is always growing in grace and godliness. So do you have saving faith? That's one of the questions as we read this portion, you know, all of the sin section of Romans is do you have saving faith? 
Do you have the righteousness from the outside? Has it done its work in you? Now, as your, as your shepherd, as your friend, as your brother in Christ, I want none of you to hear on the final day, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I want every one of you to hear instead, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. This is the gospel that leads to joy. The true gospel leads to that joy. Now and forevermore, as we talked about in Sunday school. Jesus will say each of these things, the good one and the bad one. Okay, He will say each of those things to members of the covenant. You hear that? To church members. To circumcised Jews, to baptized people. The people to whom Jesus says, I never knew you, depart from me. Those people are members of God's people. They were. Church members. We know this because they'll be saying things like, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And cast out demons in your name. And do many mighty works in your name. So they identified with God and his people while they were on this earth doing his work. Mighty works even. They thought their works could save them. Even though in reality Jesus says they were workers of what? Lawlessness. They were legalists and antinomians at the same time. So what's different about the people to whom Jesus will say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. What's different about them? It's not that they're baptized. It's not that they went to church every Sunday even. The difference with the tec- in the text that I just read, the difference is this. They did the will of the Father. Their hearts were circumcised by the Holy Spirit. They were born again and their lives showed it. Not everyone will say to me, I'm sorry, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Believe the full-orbed gospel. The full-orbed gospel is the gospel that saves you and sanctifies you. And so go forth and do the will of the Father. Let's pray. Oh God, we do not want to be like the hypocrites that Paul is addressing in this chapter, these chapters. And yet we know 
that in each one of us is a legalist and an antinomian. We know that there are inconsistencies that run all the way through us. And so we cry out to your help to live the Christian life, to be faithful to your word, to believe with all of our hearts the promises, and to walk in step with the Spirit you've given to us. We thank you for saving us. We thank you for rescuing us from the pit of hell. Thank you for rescuing us from eternal death. Please continue the good work that you've begun in us. And we ask for this in the name of Jesus. Amen.